Welcome to the Tote the Note podcast hosted by Jim Rhodes, founder and head coach at the Octane Group. Join us while we dive into the questions that matter most to buy here, pay here operators in the world of subprime auto finance. This episode is brought to you by our friends at NEO. And now, here's your host, Jim Rhodes. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Tote the Note podcast. I'm excited to have uh, Brent Carmichael with NCM, and we've got Ken Shilson, who everybody knows from NABD and Subprime Analytics. They're joining us today as we talk about, um, we start into a series called The Hardest Questions in Buy Here, Pay Here. And uh, Brent is going to be uh, kind of a, a co-presenter with me or a featured speaker as we go through these hard questions all through 2022. And then, um, you know, Ken has been kind enough to join us. He's uh, quite busy with uh, some uh, serving as an expert witness on a couple of things. And so we're fortunate enough to have him step away and join us uh, in this uh, this as well. We'll get uh, deeper into introductions. Um, we're in uh, Clearwater, Florida at our studio with the uh, Octane Podcast Studio. And uh, we're, we're pleased to have the chance to talk about these really big subjects. You know, it's been something that has been of interest to me uh, for some time is to take on some of these really hard questions that we see dealers wrestling with. And, uh, you know, Brent and I have compared a list. We like the list that we've got, but we want to hear from other dealers and hear how it is that, uh, you know, what you guys are facing as, uh, as really difficult subjects out there. I would also take the opportunity to ask those of you that are listening or viewing, uh, be sure to follow us on YouTube. Our YouTube channel will be the place that you see this information first. So if you want to get the information uh, as quickly as possible, please uh, subscribe over there to the Octane Group um, YouTube channel. And of course, you can always find us on your favorite podcast platform. This material will ultimately be available also in the BHPH Institute and at our website, Octane Group. So, or Octane.group, I should clarify that part. Now, I, you know, today, as far as our group today and our subject today, I've heard it said that um, if you find yourself being the smartest person in the room, you should probably find another room. So I feel like I've done that today. I've got uh, Brent and Ken have uh, stepped in to help uh, uh, raise the IQ in the room and help us uh, address some big questions here. So I'm, I'm excited to have them here, of course. Um, now, the um, as difference makers in this industry, uh, these guys will have a chance to contribute to what it is we have to talk about. And we're going to start into, again, this three-part mini-series. So the, the uh, a subset of this question on the, uh, on the hard questions is this, why is there no blue sky available to buy here, pay here dealers? You know, we've seen this for a long time. And uh, I, I told Michelle, I've, I've been talking about this for probably 10 years. Then I realized, no, it actually goes back to 07 for me because I met a dealer in Minnesota. And uh, this is somebody you know, Brent, but we won't name the names. But in those conversations with this dealer years ago, this is one of the brightest entrepreneurs I know. And after he'd been in business for some time, built his business up to a million or $2 million portfolio. I don't remember exactly where he was. But I just remember he shared with me back in 07. He said, I would not sell my business today for whatever my assets are. If they were $1.5 in receivables, he said, I wouldn't sell the business for $1.5. He would, he would <clears> have to have more. And it was kind of the first person besides myself that started to talk about, well, you know, what is what what is the value of those businesses, right? What is the value of the cash stream? And for me, the other parts of this have been for a long time as somebody who just, you know, this is not based on a Harvard education. This is what I call farm boy logic, just looking at and being good at math. 
you look at these numbers and you think, well, so in, in working with lenders, as an example, you'll have them say um, they look at the car as collateral instead of the receivable. And so it became, became a question for me is what is the value of the cash stream as opposed to, you know, the value of the car? So that's that's part of what we began to look at. And so that's why I kind of lead in. And then two years ago in 2022, April, I wrote um, or 2020, rather, I wrote an article for BHPH dealer. You can find that. At, um, and it's on the subject of could you sell? And it kind of touches on some things of what, what is it that keeps us from being able to translate real value in the buy here, pay here business? So um, I'm going to bring you in, Brent. What's been your thoughts about your experience with that? You're seeing dealers uh, attempt to buy and sell. What, what are you seeing out there in the marketplace? Well, I'm not seeing a lot of buying and selling as far as through our dealer clients. We've been involved in two that I can remember in the 14 years now that I've been with NCM, both of them kind of smaller uh, mom and pop. So, but from a professional experience, uh, did run an operation that did sell uh, to a publicly traded company back in 2006. So I've got direct experience, but just haven't seen a lot of it. And again, I think a majority of it is because of kind of what you mentioned. There's this stigma that there is no blue sky. So there really isn't a market to sell. Well, let me put it this way. There's a market to sell, but not to sell for what the dealer thinks that it's worth or what he feels he should get out of it. Sure. Um, because you sure. have a lot of these guys, 20 years in the business, blood, sweat, equity into this. I know my business. I should get X for this. And then when they kind of put it to paper and somebody gives them an offer, it hurts their feelings a little bit. Sure. Um, so I don't think there we're not seeing a lot of it in our 20 groups or with my dealer clients anyway, of anybody wanting to sell their business. There is a lot of it. I know we're going to talk about it today and in subsequent podcasts, more what is that parachute? How do I wind down? How do I get out of the business succession planning and those kind of things? Um, exactly. that is, there may not just be a market to put a for sale sign in the yard and sell. Yeah. So for a couple of quick things on that, for today, we're really going to talk about or in this first session, I'm going to invite people to follow the other sessions because today we really want to, in this first one, we want to talk about the problem itself. And then we'll dig into solutions in a in a future episode, but also want to take a moment while we got you there, Brent. I want to make sure that people know Brent is a guy who's been in the buy here, payer business. I think you told me since '89. It's 14 years with NCM, right? Doing uh, moderating for buy here, pay here uh, groups. That, are you did you tell me you got nine buy here, payer groups in uh, in NCM currently? So you know, Brent's a guy who's traveled a lot, has seen a lot of buy here, payer operations, worked with a lot of great operators, and so you know these things are certainly familiar to him. Also, by the way, while I'm thinking about that, Brent has got a speaking engagement coming up April 4 in uh, Texas. You guys are doing that one in person, right? Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. In Dallas or Arlington, I believe. Yeah. You want to share with the audience what that one's about? Uh, yeah, it's just going to be a one-day seminar in conjunction with TIADA uh, about uh, buy here, pay here, shop reconditioning center management. How to Very effectively good. manage a shop. Very good. So uh, those of you out there that uh, need help on the service side, you're going to want to be there for that. And then uh, let's bring Ken into the conversation. I might just make sure that what I know about Ken Shulston, he and I uh, probably met, I think, Ken, it was probably around 2001 that you and I worked together in Sarasota, Florida. So 20 right. years we've known right. each other. Many years, and, Jim. Yeah. And so I think uh, what I would say about Ken, we well, all know that Ken founded <clears throat> the NABD group. He comes to this from a financial, uh, you know, and, and a kind of a, a the CPA or, or accounting perspective. 
And I would say that Ken is somebody that has done more for standardization in this industry than anybody I know. I'm sure Ken's there. You know, I see Brent over there nodding his head. We know that uh, you, Ken, you've really contributed a lot to that. And we're all of us in the industry are grateful for the way you championed kind of standardization and especially on the financial side. So we're all fortunate to have Ken to contribute his ideas to the conversation. Ken typically works with a lot of much bigger operators, more established operators. You know, we tend to work a lot with startups, young and newer dealers, uh, where Ken works with some of the big boys across the country. And so he'll have that perspective to contribute as well. So Ken, you might share with our listeners what upcoming speaking engagements. I think you said you're also going to be at TIADA in July. Yes. Can you can you hear me all right? I just yes. just had a problem with my network connection again. I may have to dial in. Uh, can you hear me? We hear you fine. Okay, very good. Well, uh, yes, I, I will be uh, speaking at the NIADA convention in June, which is in Las Vegas. Uh, there'll be a leadership conference in the fall in Washington, D.C., and then we're working on another conference uh, in, in the fall for buy here, pay here. And uh, I, I'm also speaking at the Texas Independent Auto Dealers Association uh, conference in uh, July. So uh, those four, uh, for sure. Excellent. And uh, I will also be at TIADA. We'll be teaching some of the uh, kind of entry-level education for some folks. And we've got something really fascinating to talk about there. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you there. So uh, Michelle, you might feel share for the um, audience the uh, Facebook poll. I want to take you guys into the result of a Facebook poll that we just put out this week. It's kind of leading into this conversation wanted to get some feedback and it's a fairly small sampling, but I put about seven options out there and asked dealers to um, allow us to, um, or to, to give us some feedback on the top three things that they would pick if they were uh, to acquire another buy here, pay here operation. So that's uh, really difficult for me to read on my side, but hopefully you folks can see that. And, I can just tell you that what it says, again, the numbers are fairly small, uh, but the um, we asked the question and I listed again about seven or eight topics. What would be the first three things that you would ask the seller for if you were to um, buy an established buy here payer operation or you were to start a due diligence process? And you can see that by the, the overwhelming number was uh, cash flow report. They'd want to look at positive and negative cash flow relative to overhead. The next one was portfolio performance indicators. And then it goes to balance sheet and sales report. Uh, only one vote for the P&L report, which I think is fascinating. You know, we, we most of us understand that this business is much more about cash flow than it is the P&L, but I, I see only one dealer asked to see the, uh, the P&L of the top three things they'd want to see. So we understand that's kind of a uh, maybe not the best representation of of the you know maybe the value of the business at that time. Whereas with other businesses, they're what they sold for might be a multiple of their net profit. Maybe it's their gross profit. Maybe it's sales annualized. Those are kind of some factors that might be used in a typical brokered transaction. So you know this is um, Ken. What are your thoughts when you see that? I see Brent uh, resume or reconnecting here. We're having a little bit of connectivity problems, but what do you? Right. You see that, Ken? What's your thought? Thanks, Jim. <clears throat> well, first of all, and I'd like to say, like Brent and like yourself, I've had a lot of experience in uh, buy sales in the buy here, pay here industry, uh, and I'd like to say that I've seen two prevalent types of transactions when people are exiting the business. And I think we ought to start there. First of all, um, a lot of dealers 
just sell their portfolio, lease their lot out to somebody else and go fishing and retire. So that's that's one scenario. And uh, the other scenario is that I've been involved in some very large transactions where private equity firms have come in and and bought controlling interest in the entire buy here, pay here operation. And that's a totally different transaction. So we first of all should talk about which which direction they're going. The the first where you sell your portfolio, lease your lot and go fishing uh, does not maximize the value because we all know that in the secondary market, the sale of receivables is at always at a discount because of the inherent default risk that exists within the portfolio. So the only way to recognize a higher value is to sell your uh, entire business, which we're going to be talking about today. In order to do that, you do need historical information, including cash flow. And I'd like to point out that you need a balance sheet and an income statement and integrate that into your cash flow statement. So you really need all three. But that's not where the problem usually is. The problem is, in order to project your cash flow in the future, you got to know your lo- what your losses are going to be. So you got to have all the metrics. You've got to have CRR. You've got to have loss to liquidation. You've got to have default rate. You've got to have static pool. Or you can't project what your cash flow is going to be. So I think those are the problems, Brent. Right. Yeah, we see that. What do you think, Brent? What are you? Did you get to see the Facebook poll? Oh yeah, I did. And like I said, it doesn't surprise me at all um, because I have been contacted with guys that are looking to expand by acquisition, and just within our just within our groups and with our dealer clients. And this has been going back not recently, not the last two years, but I would say about the last five to seven years. Just day to day operations, cash flow has become the most important thing. Right. With portfolio performance second, and again, completely agree. Balance sheet was third, and, and P and L being at the bottom. I think it's funny that only one person voted for that, and that would be a new car dealer, right, Ken? Because that's Probably. all they care about. <laughs> yeah. They think that's the value of their business. So, and again, what Ken head on is completely accurate. I, we have a lot of, and I hate to say this, we did an exercise with some of our groups to kind of help them look at. Well, if you were to sell your business today, and again, I just want to throw out kind of a disclaimer. At NCM, we do not value businesses at all. That is not what we do. New car, used car, buy here, that is not what we do. I leave that to professionals like Ken to take care of that. But again, as long as I've worked with Ken and the data that him and I share together, I kind of know what it's going to bring. So we did an exercise where we showed them if they were going to sell their business today, what they could expect. And if they were going to collect out their business, what that yield would be at that point. I'm sorry I did the exercise, Jim, and Ken, to be honest with you, because I think there's about five guys we've talked out of being in buy here, pay here anymore, because they're looking at this like, if this is the place that I'm going to maximize my return, and always the collecting out, to Ken's point, is going to be the way to maximize that return. To sell that business, sell that portfolio at that kind of a discount, you're giving up a lot of gravy, so to speak, to them. Um, and then letting somebody lease your lot and go fishing. I love that aspect. I mean, I would love to be able to do that, but I know I'm not going to get very much money for it. So all, all three of the points that Ken talked about, and again, the metrics are the key more than anything else. What have you done historically, cash flow wise, loss ratio wise, and then being able to have good data project that moving forward will help increase the value of your business. If you go into a sales scenario and they ask, what does this look like? And you go, well, I can get that for you. I promise you, you just hurt your value. Yeah. 
So I guess maybe the way to go from here would be to think of it in terms of, and again, we're going to, we're going to delve into the next, uh, in the next session, we'll go deeper into actual solutions, but keeping just kind of on framing the problem for a minute. If I think about the intangibles, so let's go through a scenario where I'm a dealer. I'm, and, and let's just say I'm suddenly I'm, you know, have an unexpected change in my personal circumstances. I'm going to go through a divorce and I got a business that's well established. I got a, $10 million portfolio and, you know, a, a good number of contracts. So, and you get a good reputation in the community. Now the question becomes, I, I know I can liquidate, right? And so I know I can sell the, the receivables on the open market. There are plenty of bulk buyers out there have some bids within 72 hours, probably. Then I can sell the real estate. You know, if I chose to just liquidate that, I could sell inventory. We know how to do that. And we know what that number looks like. Question becomes, What's that, if, if I were to sell that to, I know another dealer through my country club and they're across town, they're in my same community of 75,000 people, what would that extra value be worth to that particular dealer at the country club? So I kind of want to flesh that out a little bit. Like why, why would that dealer across town step in and buy that business? What would they be gaining and acquiring an established business as an ongoing business? What, what do we see as any kind of value there? <clears throat> Dan, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Uh, either way, I can I can comment on that, Jim, and then maybe Brent, you'd, you'd like to follow. Uh, what I've seen there is that uh, we, we haven't seen a lot of dealer-to-dealer transactions in my experience for the reason that there are so many different business models in the industry. Mm-hmm. And so the first question is, is, is a buying dealer, is, is that business model going to line up with with the, with the buyer's uh, business model. So, and, and, and if it doesn't, uh, that diminishes his interest. Secondly, I think that um, a lot of dealers view uh, buyer payer operations, particularly single point operations as a personal service company, meaning that they were founded and built by a particular owner. And the concern is, can we step into their shoes and be able to continue to have the, the same uh, success. Is it scalable? It, can you increase the size of it? So there's there's all kinds of <clears throat> challenges or perceptions, if you will, that have to be overcome. And I know we'll talk about that more, but uh, those are just some of the roadblocks sure. for a dealer to buy another dealer's operation, particularly if there's a portfolio involved. They, they might figure, hey, we're better off just to find our own property uh, and start our own lot ourselves and we'll do it, do it, you know, right from scratch. That's what I've seen. Brent, what do you yeah. think? Go ahead, Brent. Uh, well, actually the two that we've been involved in, we're actually a dealer buying another dealer. And the reason they did it was just to get into a market area, figuring that do I want to, you know, the cash is going to be the same. I'm going to pay the X for the business or I'm going to use that to build a new location, hire and people. And again, very similar models and they were comfortable getting in there. Cause I know one of your questions was, and I get this question a lot. If you were going to open a new location, would you try to buy your way in or start one? And again, kind of to Ken's point, it, it, it kind of depends. I mean, it depends on is that model similar to what I've already got? Is the management structure going to stay if I purchase it? Because if they are, if it's an owner operator type of environment, Jim, and you're the dealer I'm going to buy and you want to go fishing and you're gone, then I don't know that I necessarily want that business because now I've lost the infrastructure that goes along with it. Right. Uh, if there's a key manager that's going to stay on that I get, well, then sure, I'm a little bit more interested sure. uh, in something along those lines. I would probably lean more to buying my way 
into a market as opposed to establishing, again, if all of the things lined up, mm-hmm. they had good cash flow, we had good data and good metrics, and we had a good core staff in place, I think I'd rather write that big check up front because I have immediate cash flow on that as opposed to write the little checks over the next 22 months, have to establish, I get an established customer base, I get, again, historical data that I pretty much know how it's going to perform. So there's positives and negatives to both of them. Again, it gets sure. really depends on what the dealer's looking for uh, and obviously what kind of an infrastructure I'm going to get with that purchase. Right. So, yeah, we could spend uh, a good amount of time here. We probably need to move on to solutions, you know, for our listeners here. But I think that what I would uh, share with you is this this is not going to go away for me as a subject. I'm going to be like a bulldog on the pants leg of this particular thing because, you know, value and buy here, pay here to me is something that, you know, I see having lived in Utah for a time, great circle of entrepreneurship there. You see people buying and selling businesses for multiples and the easy transactions and you know, there's formulas involved in transferring one business to another. And yes, we do have a different set of problems in buy here, payer with different business models and approaches. And we don't see we don't see very many dealers that do a very good job of, of creating that infrastructure you're talking about, whether it's, you know, written policies and procedures and very good systems and processes mapped out. Uh, in my article, I talk about what I would call an owner's manual. You know, if you're going to buy a car from me, you know, you'd like it if I could hand over an owner's manual that tells you how to operate it, how to maintain it, and the whole thing, and expect to have the same results with the car that I had. Well, if I think about this business in the same way, you know, for you to want to acquire it, and, and you, even if we look at the portfolio performance results and run a rolling 12 or rolling 24, what it looks like in the future, how can I be sure if I acquire it from you, it's going to run the same? You know, how can I know that I'm acquiring the same thing? So these are all right. things that you know, we recognize those are the challenges in buy here, pay here, but it's one of the things I look forward to kind of, you know, continuing to, to hammer away at in my career is try to create solutions for that. Because the one other scenario that occurred to me is, you know, if you take a take a uh, an example where somebody's exiting the business, they're going to retire and they've got, they can liquidate, they got a, let's say they got a um, $10 million portfolio and they know they can go to the open market and sell it for about, you know, 7.5, right? Um, or whatever that number is. Now, Brent doesn't think I can get that much. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's go with seven. We'll go 70%. But whatever the number is, whatever my liquidation percentage is, if I could then turn around and sell that to my brother-in-law, even if it's a cashless entry, and he's going to pay me eight and a half million over a period of time. And the brother-in-law can step in and acquire the business. If I've got a sustainable business, if I've got a, a business that here's the, here's the owner's manual, follow this model. I'm going to be in a consulting arrangement with you for the next two years as you step into this business. But I'm going to go fishing and you're going to run the business and you're going to acquire this equity over time. I get a little premium out of the business. You know, I think I just feel like there ought to be more scenarios like that is really where I'm going. What do you think, Ken? Well, great question, and and here here's my take on it. And and Brent, certainly you can speak to this. With NCM does a great job with new car franchise dealers, and in the franchise business, they all have standardized manufacturers standardized financial statements. So you're a Ford dealer, you report your Ford results just like somebody else does. If you're a GM dealer, just like somebody else does. In the buy your pay your industry, we have all shapes and sizes different policies, different practices that generate the numbers. It, it makes it extremely difficult to compare uh, somebody's performance with the peers because the, the, the policies and practices can all be different. The presentations can be different. 
And that is a severe impediment to being able to get your arms around the value of a business when you don't, when you don't have any consistency. I have worked hard with, with my profession, AICPA, to start to put in some standardized accounting policies and practices. We've had some success, but there's still a long ways to go. So one of the things that, that uh, I would say is that when a buyer comes in, he is going to form certain perceptions of what things were and what they're going to be in the future. And so it's so important that the seller be ready to put his best foot forward and create positive perceptions to maximize the value. If he lets the uh, the buyer have the, the, the worst perception of his business, he's going to minimize his value. So that's, right. that's some of the problems that I see. And maybe we can get into some of those solutions in a little bit. But Brent, yeah. uh, you know, welcome to comment. Jim, you too. I completely agree, Ken, and that's the thing. You know what makes you, and this again from personal experience, when we sold our dealership, what sold us was not me necessarily as the vice president of the company. What sold us was, first of all, we had good data, good policies and procedures in place, and we had a good management infrastructure that, when they bought it, everything was already there in place. Everything was wide open, and Stevens did a phenomenal job back then with due diligence to get us yeah. ready. Yeah. Um, and again, to Ken's point, you mentioned one thing, Jim, I do want to kind of go back on when you said that, you know, you're going to get 7.5 for a $10 million portfolio. And I think Ken knows this as well. Um, there is, I don't want to say it's an issue, but I think there's some unrealistic expectations set on what a portfolio is worth. Right. Because, and again, nothing against the providers out there in any form or fashion, but too many dealers get a phone call that will give you 92 or 93 cents on the dollar for your portfolio. And what they're actually talking about is typically about a 25% or maybe 33% of that portfolio is worth that amount. But as far as a bulk purchase is concerned, that's where the truth comes out is what that portfolio is actually worth. Right. So right. I think that has hurt more of the buy sells in our industry because they think that it's worth this. They hear their portfolio is worth x and then when we come down to do the offer they go well, wait a minute i mean i can so and so buy this for 92. no sure. they won't not anything over 30 or not anything under 30 days no sure. recourse those numbers are are minimal sure. um compared to what a lot of dealers think, think um, yeah. the selling and that's good we see the same thing by the way you know we talk about um the bulk buyers cherry picking and i'm not picking on them either it's just that that's the nature of how that transaction works is they'll They'll pick it based on certain stratifications of delinquency or aging, whatever. So that happens. I would just say it, it that just further kind of magnifies the problem that I'm describing. It means dealers are building this business. They're putting a lot of blood and sweat into building this buy here, pay here business. They're anticipating some sort of exit. And so they're going to get crammed down, you know, like we talked about in the bankruptcy world. They're going to get crammed yeah. down, you know, in a way on that equity when they liquidate, especially if it's unforeseen liquidation, a divorce or some some sort of personal life changes and it's kind of unplanned, then, you know, it can be a, it's just a liquidation model. I don't necessarily look at it as cramming down. Okay. okay. Maybe I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Um, I think it's more what reality is. I think the cramming down comes from, and we have a, quite a few of our dealer clients, I'd say a third, maybe 40% are new car dealers as well. Sure. Or they've been in other businesses where, like you mentioned earlier, things sell out of multiple, you know, we're, 
if we were just selling cars, if you price stars off of that, then that makes sense. But we all know that we're the finance business. Right. We're in the collection business. And yeah. so that equity is that receivable and how well it's collected. I've been trying to sing at the top of my lungs since I've been at least with NCM and even before for us to come up with a standardized chart of accounts. And anybody getting into the business, I send them kits. Um, yeah. Not trying to, you know, blow smoke up his bottom, but that's, I try to get them on one because being in the 20 group business, Ken's right. I've got whatever we have. We have 400 reporting data on a monthly basis. And I would bet at the most 50 of those have the exact same standard chart of accounts and everything lines up. The other 350, something's a little different. This gets put here, that gets put there. And so when they even come to report with us, we have to do this apples to apples, make sure that this goes there and add this here. Because again, one thing that we like about our 20 groups is, is that I have in each group a bunch of different business models, which probably makes it tougher. Instead of having everybody do a $7,000 ACV and a $5,000 gross and a $1,000 down payment, we have lease here, pay here, buy here, pay here, high ACV, low ACV. So from a reporting standpoint, it does make it more difficult. But again, it makes it more of a well-rounded so you get to see a little bit of everything. So it, it is tough to Ken's point to try to standardize this because I could show you one dealer that looks like the most successful dealer in the world. On paper, they look terrible. And I can show you a dealer's lot that you go, this guy can't make any money and he's printing money. Right. Uh, just all in the way that they manage the business and how they account for it. Um, yeah. And that's the biggest part for any dealers that are wanting to sell their business or even collect out or value it is you can't start tracking data now. This is going to have to be something that you've done over time or it's going to kill you. Yeah. Jim, can Go I ahead. just comment real quickly sure. um, to, to both your points, which are very good. Um, if if you, if any of us were going to go out and sell some, I would bet you that we would try to figure out what it's worth before we sell it and try to have a realistic expectation. Well, in buy your payer, when people call me and say, Ken, I'm interested in exiting the business. Can you help me sell it? The first thing I tell them is let's Let's get a valuation of your entire portfolio and your business first. So we have a realistic expectation of what it's really worth by an independent third party. And right. so when then a buyer comes in, he then has some basis for forming his initial perception. And you have a realistic expectation of what it's worth so that you don't start off by thinking it's worth one thing and the buyer thinks uh, perceives it differently and the whole deal crashes before it even gets started. So yeah. that's, that would be my advice. That's very good. Yeah. That's where Go the exercise came from, Ken, that they kind of wanted to see. And again, we, we don't value the business anyway, but we basically looked at it as assets, let's liabilities. Let's look at that because that's going to be probably the best or worst case scenario that you're looking at. And it was an eye opener for some, especially depending on their debt structure. And that's where a lot of dealers kind of forget about that. In some businesses, your debt structure is not as important as in others. In ours, and can't agree or disagree with me here, it, I think it is very important what that debt structure looks like, what that leverage percentage is, either as a percent Absolutely. of portfolio or total assets, one of the two. In some businesses, it doesn't really necessarily matter as much as it does in our industry. And I think mm -hmm. that's where there's a lot of misconception too, is you know some of these businesses out there, if I'm levered at 65%, that's okay. But when it comes to our business with the type of portfolios that we manage, 
you know, that debt's going to have to be paid, may not be able to sub to somebody else. So I think there's some of that that needs that people need to take into account as well. Sure, that's good. We can cover that more when we get into leverage. I know, Ken, you, you certainly, I've heard you talk about leverage and I, I certainly feel the same way working with portfolios. One other thing quickly that I see is that, um, you know, you talk about different business models, certainly that exists. There are different software providers out there, right? So we got all these different DMS systems in buy here, pay here. And sometimes within a single DMS, you got people handle repos different ways. You know, so there's just a lot of inconsistency about that in, in our business. And we get that. So I'm not naive to recognize that we don't have those things to overcome. I just think that, um, you know, in our next session, we'll dig more into, um, you know, the kind of the some of the solutions and how we begin to solve some of this. So, again, I would just invite our listeners and viewers to uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. You'll be able to find session number two where we dive into solutions on um, on this whole blue sky uh this mythical blue sky thing and so again tune into episode number two ken and brent will join us and we'll, you'll find that in a separate episode thanks for joining us please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe to tote the note and thanks again to our sponsor neo find them at neoverify.com until next time